Okay, so uh, last Sunday we began a two-part digression on covenant theology as we're going through this series on the law. And the purpose of this digression was to understand the covenantal context and purpose of the divine positive laws. As we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, God has established the moral law in accordance with his own character and his own righteousness. And this moral law uh, transcends all time. It is the standard of right and wrong. Um, But he has also created positive laws to govern the various covenants that he has entered into with different groups of people throughout history. Um, And these laws, because they pertain to uh, unique circumstances of the various covenants, are not binding apart from these covenants. And last week, we looked at the three principal covenants of redemptive history, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace, uh, as well as the Noahic covenant, which is the first of the other category of covenants that I mentioned, the, what I call the subservient covenants, not just I call them, other, others have called them that, subservient covenants, and they are called that because they serve those other more principal covenants in various ways. So the Noahic covenant that we looked at last week, as I said, it serves the covenant of works by instructing falling man in how to live in this world that's been cursed by sin. It doesn't save anyone from damnation, but it guarantees the continuation of the created order of the habitability of earth and the survival of mankind until the consummation of the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. And so the Noahic covenant also thus serves the covenant of grace by guaranteeing the continued flourishing of mankind until all the elect of God have been born and have been brought into the kingdom of Christ. So speaking of kingdoms, just to rehash another thing from last week, before we transition into today's subject matter, remember that last week I spoke about three kingdoms which God has established and governs through the various covenants. There was the kingdom of creation, also known as the common kingdom. There's the kingdom of Christ or the church. And then there was the kingdom of Israel. But remember I said that the kingdom of Israel was actually subservient Uh, to the kingdom of Christ in that it was made to represent the kingdom of Christ through types and shadows until the kingdom of Christ would be visibly established. Um, So regarding the covenants that we've looked at so far, the covenant of redemption promised a kingdom to Christ. The covenant of grace established the kingdom of Christ as a reality, albeit it was an invisible reality at first. Um, then the covenant of works and the Noahic covenant govern the common kingdom. So today what we're going to look at is the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, which establish and govern the kingdom of Israel, as well as briefly the new covenant, which is the formal and visible inauguration of the kingdom of Christ. So we'll start with the Abrahamic covenant. 
And we actually see that God promises this covenant to Abraham in three stages. First, in Genesis 12, God promises to make Abraham, or Abram as he was then called, into a great nation. And that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. He also told Abram, once he reached the land of Canaan, uh, to your offspring I will give this land. Uh, In Genesis 15, God comes again and promised to Abraham that his own son would be his heir. Uh, Though at that time he had no son and he was expecting another relative of his to be his heir. So after this, his wife Sarai contrives to make this happen by giving her Egyptian servant Hagar to Abram, and Hagar bore him a son, Ishmael. In Genesis 17, God changes Abram and Sarai's names to Abraham and Sarah, which mean father of a multitude and princess, respectively. And here he also gives the first of the positive laws pertaining to this covenant and also the only positive law until the time of Moses, and that is circumcision. Um, he also makes, gives a promise that, you know, no, Ishmael will not be your heir, that Isaac, who, is the son of, who will be the son of you by Sarah, will be your heir. Um, but so this... Because uh, circumcision was given as this first positive law to the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant is also commonly called the covenant of circumcision. Um, And all the male descendants of Abraham were to be circumcised. Now, like Adam in the covenant of works and Christ in the covenant of grace, as we talked about last week, Abraham is the federal head of this covenant. Remember what we said about federal headship last week. The federal head is the person with whom God has made the covenant. And so everyone else who participates in that covenant does so by way of union with that federal head. Um, And so this positive law of circumcision was for Abraham, as Romans 4.11 tells us, a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Since we're told that uh, Abraham had faith. We're told about that in Genesis 15, although he wasn't given circumcision until chapter 17. Uh, Now for Abraham's descendants, circumcision was their sign of union with Abraham in this covenant. And so that they were part of the nation that God had promised to Abraham and that they were heirs of the promise, at least according to the flesh. But The Abrahamic covenant did not only hold forth physical promises, nor was Abraham's offspring merely a physical offspring. Uh, Romans 4.16 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then Galatians 3, 7 to 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. 
I'm sorry, this is, yes, the end of the quote, in, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So, um, yeah, all who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham because he was the man of faith. Um, so we see from these passages that those who have the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. It is in this that we see the covenant of grace revealed in a shadowy way um, by the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, as the federal head of this covenant and as the root of this kingdom of Israel, although it wouldn't be given the name Israel until his grandson, uh, prefigured Christ. So the physical circumcised offspring of Abraham is a visible picture of the redeemed people of Christ. Romans 2.29 tells us that a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Uh, There are numerous passages in the Old and New Testaments which speak of true conversion and regeneration as circumcision of the heart. Now, Abraham had two sons. There was Ishmael by the, uh, by the servant Hagar and Isaac by his wife, Sarah. Isaac was the son promised to God, and he is the one through whom this promise would continue. And hopefully you know the story with Isaac's two sons. Um, the older was Esau and the younger was Jacob. Um, but God told Isaac's wife, Rebekah, that the older of her sons would serve the younger. Jacob, the younger one, swindles his older brother Esau out of his birthright and out of their father's blessing. Uh, and then afterwards, he flees to his kinsman Laban's house to find a wife. And after he marries both of Laban's daughters, he ends up with 12 sons and a daughter uh, by his two wives and their two servants. But he meets with God, and God gives him the name Israel. His son Joseph is sold into uh, is sold to slave traders by his brothers and winds up in Egypt. The rest of the family later flees to Egypt to escape a famine, and they settle there. They become very numerous, and a subsequent pharaoh decides that they are a threat to the nation of of uh, Egypt, and he enslaves them. He also orders the murder of all newborn sons of Israel, but one such son is put in a basket and sitting down the Nile where he is found and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter who names him Moses. He grows up in Pharaoh's house, but he also cares about the Israelites and he kills one of the Egyptian taskmasters whom he sees beating a slave, causing Moses to have to flee from Egypt to Midian. Now after this, he meets with God who appears to him in the burning bush And God commissions him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Uh, So then, after the Israelites are delivered from Egypt, God promises that he is going to return them to the land of Canaan, which he had promised to Abraham, and establish them there as a nation. So, en route to Canaan, they camp at Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. And this begins with the Ten Commandments, which we've already established in this series, is nothing more than the precepts of the moral law spelled out on tablets of stone. He then also gives them many other laws. And some of these detail the moral law by giving more specific applications of the moral law. Uh, 
Others govern how the people are to worship God, and then others provide for the civil governance of the nation of Israel. So several chapters of the book of Exodus lay out the specifications for the tabernacle. And this is the tent in which the glory of the Lord would dwell in the midst of the camp. See, this uh, kingdom of Israel was to be a type of the church, which, of course, the church is uh, Christ's kingdom. And we who are his people dwell with him. But um, in Israel, as it was uh, as a nation, a type of the church, it has this tabernacle within the camp, which uh, would later be reconstructed into a temple of stone by King Solomon. And this essentially served as God's palace on earth. So just to uh, kind of cover uh, what this tabernacle looked like, even though a lot of you probably know, but just to kind of talk about the, the typology in order to understand the covenant. Um, the tabernacle had a large fence around it with one entrance. And if you went past that entrance, there was the large altar upon which burnt offerings were made. And inside the entrance to the tent itself was the holy place where in the golden lampstand, the table for the showbread, and the altar of incense were found. Um, and then beyond this was the veil, which had the two cherubim woven into it, just like the uh, cherubim that God placed at the entrance of Eden after the expulsion of Adam and Eve. And behind the veil was the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. And only the priests, uh, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with the people. And yeah, only the priests were allowed to enter the tabernacle at all. And only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And even then, only on one day per year, which is the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which you can read about in Leviticus 16. So the Holy of Holies is like the very throne room of God. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to sprinkle upon the ark the blood of a bull and of a goat. Um, and that was the only time anyone could enter the Holy of Holies. But besides this, there were sin offerings being made on the altar out in the um, court outside the, the tent itself year round. And so when you think about this tabernacle, it was a very bloody place with all of these sacrifices being made. And what all of this depicts is that because of the sinfulness of man, we've become separated from God and we are not able, according to any of our own merits, to enter his presence. If we're going to be able to enter God's presence, it's going to require that our sins be covered by the blood of another who is himself innocent. And this need for an innocent sacrifice was depicted in the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant by the requirement that the sacrificial animals be spotless and unblemished. But it's necessary that we understand that these animals could never actually take away sins. Uh, the veil over the Holy of Holies still remained. Um, the people could not actually go into it and be in the presence of the Ark. Now, um, all of these pictures were there for the Israelites' instruction, and they uh, 
should have been able to understand these things through the uh, just the due course of study of the scriptures. And many of them did, but many did not. The sacrificial system was supposed to show them the need for a better sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, uh, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, But of course, we see in the Gospels that many Jews, especially by the time of Jesus, had placed their faith in the law rather than in Christ. And in fact, their expectation of the Messiah or the Christ was not that he would be the perfect sacrifice to take away their sins, but that he would be a, a warrior king to deliver them from the Romans. And so even though God gave all of these uh, pictures to instruct the people about the work of redemption and the kingdom of Christ, um, they, they just missed it. They, they didn't understand and they distorted the meaning of it. So besides the uh, tabernacle and all the sacrifices, we have the other ceremonial laws which deal with things like ceremonial cleanliness and these uh, regulated how certain diseases and maladies were dealt with. They contained purification rites. They designated certain animals as unclean and unfit to be eaten by the Israelites. And as Israel was to be the visible representation of the kingdom of Christ until the kingdom of Christ was formally inaugurated in a visible way by Christ, Israel needed to display the holiness of the kingdom of Christ. Um, And of course, they were commanded to be personally holy by faith. We have many uh, exhortations in the Old Testament for the Israelites to, as I mentioned earlier, be circumcised in the heart, which uh, is regeneration. Um, and, you know, to express loving obedience to the moral law. But in order for the kingdom of Israel to provide a clear, visible representation of this holiness of the kingdom of Christ, God gave them these ceremonial laws, which served as a sort of shadow or an analogy for the holiness of the people. So you can see Romans fourteen seventeen. And Colossians 2, 16 and 17, we won't go there. We'll look at those more in detail next week. But they talk about how the ceremonies of the Old Covenant were a shadow of what we have now in Christ. So besides the ceremonial laws, God also gave them the civil or judicial laws. Uh, Because Israel was established as an actual nation on earth, they needed laws for their governance. And... In these laws, we do find some things that are common to all nations, but also the particulars of the laws serve the unique purpose of this covenant, and which is to be a picture of the kingdom of Christ. And so these laws prefigure commands that would later in the new covenant be given to the church regarding how the people of Christ were to relate to one another and 
to deal with various issues that might arise within the church, uh, especially in order to maintain the purity of the church. Uh, These civil laws, one of their purposes was to maintain the purity of the kingdom of Israel. Again, we'll look at that in a lot more detail next week. Now, as the kingdom of Israel was actually a kingdom, naturally we would expect it to have a king. I already mentioned Abraham as the federal head of the people of Israel. Um, And in that sense, he does compare to Christ, who is the federal head of the church. But Abraham was a mortal man who died, and so he did not continue to reign as king over the kingdom of Israel. Back in Genesis 49, uh, verses 8 through 12, Jacob gave a blessing, uh, well, to all of his sons, but in that passage, he's blessing his fourth son, Judah. And in that, he alludes to the fact that Judah's descendants would be a kingly line. Now, when God gave the law and initially established the kingdom of Israel in the land, he did not immediately give them a king. Uh, We can read all about that time in the book of Judges, wherein we're told repeatedly that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was a a chaotic time with a lot of wickedness on display. Uh, Now, the law, even though it didn't establish a king immediately, it did uh, make provisions for the future when the nation would have a king. And eventually, in 1 Samuel 8, Israel demands that the last judge, Samuel, give them a king. But their desire is for a worldly king like what the other nations had. And God, through Samuel, warns them against this. But he still uh, goes ahead and anoints Saul as king according to the people's desire. Now, Saul is not of the tribe of Judah. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul disobeys God and ends up being rejected by God. So God then directs Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, who was of the tribe of Judah, and to anoint Jesse's youngest son, David. And after the death of Saul, David becomes the king of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 17, God makes a covenant with David. Um, And I thought about us actually going and reading that. Uh, Brother Fonzo said he'd like to have more time to prepare for, you know, the music today. So we'll skip that so that uh, we can finish a little early. Um, But this covenant that God makes with David, uh, he promises that a son of David would build a house for the Lord and that David's line would continue on the throne forever. And we know that this is only partially fulfilled by David's physical descendants. His son Solomon did build a temple of stone in Jerusalem. But we know also that that temple was later destroyed and then rebuilt and then destroyed again. And it no longer stands. We also know that there is not presently a son of David sitting on a throne somewhere in this world. So has God's promise to David failed? And I hope we can all answer that, of course, it has not failed. The promise that God made to David is not ultimately fulfilled in the physical structure of the temple or in any physical lineage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, 
for we are the temple of the living God. And then Peter says in Acts 2, 30 and 31, that uh, David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David, you see, knew that this promise was not about a physical throne, but it was still a physical lineage. Excuse me. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah and of the house of David. David and his physical descendants uh, were the kings of Israel until the nation split, and they continued as kings of the southern kingdom of Judah for centuries after that. Um, And so they did serve in this kingdom as a type of the kingship of Christ over his kingdom. But their line as kings of Judah had ended quite a while before the time when Christ came. Christ was not born the son of an earthly king. He was born to the Virgin Mary, who was betrothed to a humble carpenter. Uh, He never did sit on an earthly throne, but we know now that he sits on a heavenly one. And so finally then we come to the new covenant. And it is in this covenant that we see the kingdom of Christ visibly inaugurated in the form of the church. Again, this kingdom has existed since the time when the covenant of grace was first revealed in the garden to Adam and Eve. And I do believe that it is proper to say that every believer since then has been a part of the church, contrary to those who say that the church didn't exist until the first century AD, and also contrary to those who say that all of Israel, including both regenerate and unregenerate persons, was actually the church prior to uh, the first century. Israel and the church, I would say, existed side by side, and the church during that time was primarily made up of Israelites, but namely they were those who were genuine believers. And so this visible inauguration of the kingdom of Christ began at Pentecost, or rather it, it took place at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples who preached to all the people who were gathered at Jerusalem, which included foreigners. And those foreigners, we see, heard the disciples speaking in those uh, foreigners' native languages by the power of the Holy Spirit. And after this point, we see that the believers began gathering together in houses. So these gatherings... um, are where we start to see new elements of worship not present before in Israel. And these are um, what we would call today the local church. Um, And so there were a lot of differences, of course, that we see between the local church or the, the way that the church worshiped and the way that Israel worshiped. First of all, there were no sacrifices and no priests. Um, This is happening after Jesus' death and resurrection. He himself was the final sacrifice. And after his ascension, he went before the Father as high priest with all the sacrificial blood that would ever be needed to atone for the sins of the church. 
And so unlike the old priests who, as we saw, had to be continually on their feet working and making offerings, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on the basis of that one sacrifice and continues making intercession for us without needing any continual sacrifices. So um, the veil that blocked access to the Holy of Holies, we know was torn in two when he died. And as a result of that, um, now we can take our prayers to God directly without any mediation from an earthly priest. Um, In fact, we see Jesus instructed us to begin our prayers with the address, Our Father, which was unheard of prior to that time. Now, second, as the church is made up of those who are actually regenerate, born again, we're no longer under the rigor of the law. When God promised this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, uh, and this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to write down the verses, but he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now that isn't to say that teaching and exhortation are no longer needed in the church. But what it is saying is that God has given us, who are part of this church, new natures which desire to know God and to be lovingly obedient to his law, not as under compulsion like those who are under the law, but... Um, actually because we desire to obey as children desire to obey a father that they know loves them. Um, Now, this new covenant does come with new positive laws, uh, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, as we're told in Colossians 2.12, it represents our dying and being resurrected with Christ. And so it's in baptism that we express our union with Christ as our federal head, um, just like it was through circumcision that the sons of Abraham uh, were, uh, had their union with Abraham expressed. Uh, so it is in that sense that baptism and circumcision correspond, but in some of the other ways that people have, have uh, tried to explain baptism and circumcision correspond, uh, which would lead to infant baptism, those, I think, do not have a scriptural merit. But they do in the sense that they are uh, the rites which unite people in a visible sense with their federal head. Um, Also in the Lord's Supper, we feast upon the flesh and blood of Christ, not physically, but spiritually. Remember how last week when we were looking at the Noahic Covenant, I, uh, I noted the prohibition of eating blood. In the Lord's Supper, we, in a spiritual way, drink the very blood of the sacrifice that accomplished our atonement with God. Um, we also gather on the first day of the week instead of the seventh, 
And it's because it's uh, the day on which Christ actually rose from the dead. And so we uh, worship on this first day in order to commemorate that. And whereas uh, previously people were to work six days and then rest on the seventh day in uh, apprehension of a future rest which God would give them, because that rest was accomplished by Christ in his resurrection, we can now look back to that and commemorate it on the first day of the week. And so our work for the remainder of the week is grounded upon that promise of eternal rest. Um, There are also various mutual obligations which we share with one another as a covenant community, Uh, things like uh, discipline, um, like the ways that we're to serve one another and live together as a community. These are a lot of the things that were prefigured in the civil laws of the Mosaic Covenant, and we'll look at those in a lot more detail next week when we look at the ceremonial and civil laws. Um, But then ultimately, when Christ returns, this uh, kingdom of Christ will be fully consummated as the eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be then when sin, death, and all the other things that afflict the world will have been done away with for good, and we will be able to see Christ face to face in the new Jerusalem. So I hope that uh, these last two lessons have been helpful for understanding the covenants and the uh, way that they structure and frame the Bible um, and the story of redemption. So, as I said, I, I took this digression because I thought that it would be helpful for understanding biblical law. So next week, we'll get back to our main subject matter, which is the laws that God has given. And we'll be looking at the uh, ceremonial and civil laws of the Mosaic Covenant. So hopefully with, with all of this that we've been over in uh, last week and today, it will help you to understand the context for those laws. Um, So that is all I've got for today's lesson. Does anyone have any uh, questions, anything they would like to clarify or any comments? Okay. Um, Well then, uh, Seth, would you pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for loving us, for caring for us, for revealing your word to us, for giving us everything we need to know you, Lord. We're thankful that you have redeemed the people for yourself. We're thankful for the the church universal and the local church as well. We're thankful that you have called us out of our sin to come and to worship you on this day. We're thankful for the preparation that John has put in. We're thankful for that he has taught these these lessons of, of the covenant to us, Lord, that um, we might know what you have revealed throughout history of, of how you have chosen to redeem a people for yourself. We pray that um, we see these applications applied to our hearts on this day, that we are able to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that you receive the glory above all. We pray for our time together in the coming hour. And all the saints receive a blessing. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.